The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. I want to welcome you today to the Zion Primitive Baptist Church podcast. This podcast is an outreach of Zion Primitive Baptist Church, which is located in the Zion community near Gordo, Alabama. I'm Elder Chris McCool, and I serve as pastor of Zion Primitive Baptist Church. We are a congregation of believers in the sovereign grace of God where families worship together through the simple practice of preaching, praying, and singing. If you live in this area or are visiting here, we would love to have you attend worship services with us. We meet every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and every Sunday evening at 5 p.m. and the first and third Wednesday evenings at 6.30 p.m. I'm happy to note that our daily podcast is featured on Grace Alone Radio, which you can find at gracealoneradio.net. You can find the schedule on the website, and you can also download an app to your phone so that you can listen wherever you are. Grace Alone Radio is a 24-hour streaming service which carries the message of God's sovereign grace around the clock and around the world. Zion Primitive Baptist Church is located at 9487 County Road 49, Gordo, Alabama. That's near the intersection of County Road 49 and Alabama Highway 159, about 10 miles north of Gordo, Alabama, and about 8 miles northeast of Reform, Alabama. If you're interested in finding more sermons, you can go to our website at zionpbc.com, that's z-i-o-n-p-b-c.com, where you'll find all of our posted sermons as well as a link to subscribe to our podcast. You can also subscribe to our website which will update you every time a new sermon is posted. We have been looking at Elihu, the fourth friend of Job. Elihu apparently was the youngest of his friends and waited until last to speak. In the last sermon, which was posted in two parts, Elihu answers Job's accusation that God is not merciful by proving that God is indeed merciful. In today's sermon, Elihu answers Job's second accusation against God, which is that God is unjust. Elihu rightly shows Job that God is indeed just, but once again, he misses the right application. He is harsh and angry with Job, which is not the way we should treat someone in Job's condition. Due to the length of this sermon, we will not have a song today, but join us as we look at Elihu's response that God is a just God. I want to go back to the book of Job tonight. We had begun looking at the last of Job's miserable comforters. (laughs) And, you know, I don't want to do Elihu any injustice, but I don't want to lift him up too high either because he didn't get it all right. And he, he got it maybe a little more right. <laughs> Can I say it that way? A little more right than the others did, but he still didn't get it just right. One of the interesting things about Elihu, which uh, we're, we're going to be looking into the um, 34th chapter tonight, But as you recall, it started back in the 32nd chapter. And Elihu starts off really full of himself. Uh, He's full of zeal, and that's a good thing. And Brother Buddy, I'm reminded of young preachers sometimes. Sometimes, I guess the Lord blessed me not to be called till I was already old. So I maybe didn't have that same misplaced zeal that some young men have. but, uh, But I'm sure I did even at the beginning of my ministry. But... Uh, I, by the way, I was 40 years old when I was called, when I surrendered to the call to preach. So, so uh, that's uh, it used to, I used to think that was old, but it's not uh, certainly not to me now. But um, he reminds me of some young preachers, full of zeal, but maybe 
hasn't quite gotten the right application always of, of every scripture. Certainly we never get to the point where we get every scripture just right, but there are some scriptures that need to be rightly divided and some principles from the word of God that need to be rightly applied. So what we see with Elihu is he gets some of those principles. In fact, he introduces a little bit of a new thought into the process of, of these arguments here about how that sometimes maybe suffering helps us. Now, you have to be careful when you talk about suffering and the trials of life because we don't want to slip into what the world thinks, for example, about uh, Romans 8, 28. They think that means every single thing that happens in the world is working together with God somehow or God is working with it to make it good for you. But I got to tell you that the wickedness of this world is not working for your good. We live, I believe, in Babylon today. That, that Babylon that's talked about in not the literal Babylon, but the Babylon that's talked about over in the book of Revelation that Brother Buddy's going to get to eventually, that uh, mystery, uh, Babylon the Great. That's the Babylon that we live in. It's the spiritual Babylon. And that's where we are today. And we're having our young folks compromised and pulled here and yonder. And it's just a, a difficult situation for most all of us, for all of us to live in. But that's not working for our good, okay? Now, the truth is that God overrules these things for our good. You know, I believe in the overruling providence of God, not the getting down and dirty with sin providence of God. And also, we have to realize that sometimes suffering, you know, there, there is chastening that comes from God. Most often that chastening is just God saying, okay, you want to drive? You have at it. And you end up in the ditch, you know. Sometimes, though, it's when he brought the Babylonians, for example, down upon Israel to chasten them and to, and, and to bring them to a point where they would acknowledge him again. And we also read last time where that David said, it was good for me that I was afflicted. Sometimes it's good for me that I'm afflicted. You know, I've, I've had some afflictions lately, not physical, but otherwise some spiritual afflictions. I've been closer to God <laughs> the last few days than I've been in a while, you know. Uh, I don't think I've been far away, but I sure hadn't been where I've been, right at the feet of Jesus, you see. And so sometimes afflictions bring us to a point of, coming back to God and prevent us from getting away from God. So he, he introduces this concept. We talked about that last time and that he's bringing this out and, and saying, look, y'all are all saying it's all punishment for Job. Job's not living right. Job's not doing right. And therefore all this came upon him. Job's saying, I did everything right. I'm not, you know, I'm just, it's not a cause of what I've done. And, and he said, you're both wrong. And he's right that they're both wrong. But again, Elihu doesn't quite get it right either. He gets overzealous and harsh and interestingly enough and we we talked about this two times ago God's about to come on the scene you know Elihu says I got this from God I'm inspired by God God is about to come on the scene in chapter 38 and not one time does he mention anything Elihu said <laughs> he doesn't come down here and say oh yeah oh, my, my, my servant Elihu didn't he tell you what I no he didn't do that he came down to speak his own peace, if you will. Last time we talked about chapter 33 and Elihu, this is where he was beginning to introduce that concept of suffering that might keep us from sinning and bring us back to God as a corrective tool. 
We talked about at the end of last time, Paul's thorn in the flesh. And I want you to remember, just to be sure we don't get mixed up on where these troubles and trials of life come from, he didn't say it was a messenger from God. He said it was a messenger from Satan. Satan, the reason we suffer in this life, ultimately can be blamed upon Satan who tempted Adam who fell in the garden and we now live in a sin-cursed world. So, let's go to chapter 34 now as we continue looking at what Elihu said. Beginning down in verse, uh, we'll just begin in verse 1. Furthermore, Elihu answered and said, Hear my words, O ye wise men, and give ear unto me, ye that have knowledge. For the ear trieth words as the mouth tasteth meat. Let us choose to us judgment. Let us know among ourselves what is good. And here he is again, just introducing himself and, and kind of, you know, he's, he's being nice. You know, he's being nice. I've, I've been told before you better watch somebody that starts out being real nice to you. You know, um, I forget how Brother Sonny Piles used to put it, but he used to have a saying about that, that, uh, that they bring out the honey before they bring out the sword, you know. So he's being nice. He's kind of buttering them up. But, but he's, about to, he's about to get into the meat of the complaint he has against Job. And, and it's, it's basically two complaints. Look at verses 5 and 6. For Job hath said, I am righteous, and God hath taken away my judgment. Should I lie against my right, my wound is incurable without transgression. So the first claim that Job has made is that God is unjust. God is unjustly afflicting him. I am righteous, but God has taken away my judgment. We're going to come back to that in a minute, but remember that. That's the first complaint. Then look at, as we continue reading here, verses 6, uh, verses 7, rather, through 9. He says, What man is like Job, who drinketh up scorning like water, which goeth in company with the workers of iniquity, and walketh with wicked men? For he hath said, It profiteth a man nothing that he should delight himself with God. You know, we, we, sing, we say that prayer, God is great, God is good. What, what Elihu is saying here is that Job's complaint is that God is not just and God is not good. In other words, God is unjust, God is ungood, if you will, because there's no profit in serving God. God's just not good to us. He's not, you know, uh, why, why should I serve him? It's not exactly what Job was saying, but Job did have that complaint at one point in, in some ways. And so, you know, I'm not... I'm not I'm not going to stand here and defend Elihu's characterization of what Job said, but that is what he characterized it as. And Job did say these things that could be taken that way. So Job says God is unjust. And that's down through the rest of this chapter. That's what Elihu is going to deal with. So we're going to probably just tonight talk about that. So as we begin in verse 10, Elihu is going to deal with the first complaint that Job has, which is that God is unjust. And he's going to prove that he is not unjust. So look at verse 10. We'll begin there, verse 10 through 15. Therefore hearken unto me, ye men of understanding, far be it from God that he should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that he should commit iniquity. For the work of a man shall he render unto him, and cause every man to find according to his ways. Yea, surely God will not do wickedly, neither will the Almighty pervert judgment. I want to stop right there and say this. 
What he's saying is, and he's going to say as he keep, we keep reading, is that if God is unjust, then he is not God. Because one of the primary attributes of God is righteousness. He is a just God. We're told that over and over and over. If you remember in the book of Revelation, the 16th chapter and the 7th verse, we're told that John heard another out of the altar say, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. We've dealt with that in other sermons, how God is always right. You know, we'll come back to this in a minute, but one of the objections that people have to the doctrine of election is it just wouldn't be right if God didn't give everybody a chance. And what Paul's, re Paul's response to that is, is that number one, if you're accusing God of unrighteousness, you don't know my God. And number two, if you understand election as being unrighteous or unfair, you don't understand election the way you should. Because you see, we're told in Psalm 7, 9, that he is the righteous God who tries the hearts and reigns. And one of my favorite verses, I, I want to tell you, this is just, I, I use this verse today. Back over in Genesis chapter 18 and verse 25, one of my favorite verses, when, God, when Abraham is negotiating there for the life of Lot, or for the, actually for the preservation of Sodom. And he, he's talking to God, and this Abraham, this friend of God, it almost sounds audacious what he says. But I can say to you that I don't believe he was being audacious or presumptuous. He was just reminding God, who needed no reminding, but yet who from time to time it helps, to just, it helps us to just be reminded. He was just reminding God of this principle. He said, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? God always does right. He doesn't just intend right. He doesn't just exist in a right state. His righteousness is active righteousness. And see, you come back to that. As I said, one of the objections to the doctrine of election is that it just wouldn't be right for God to do this. And here, let's just turn over there. I, I didn't mean to go there tonight, but let's do it. Let's turn over to uh, Romans chapter 9. And we've talked about this before, but I just don't think you can talk about it enough. I've, we're told in one place that the Word of God's like a nail. How do you drive a nail home? You hit it one hard lick and it goes all the way in? No. <laughs> you drive it over and over and over again. So you say, well, you're preaching the same thing to us, preacher. Well, I, I don't have anything new to preach to you. Romans chapter 9, verse 11, For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. We see here the doctrine of election set forth. He said it's the purpose of God according to election. That's, why, that's what we're talking about. You can't argue with that fact. He's talking about election. <laughs> What's he talking about? He said it's the purpose of God according to election. I don't have to read between the lines to rightly divide that. I just read what's there on the lines. And he says, Jacob, who is an individual, but yet throughout the scripture who represents the children, the elect children of God, is loved, and Esau, who throughout the scripture is in different places, represents those who are not children of God, Esau have I hated, okay? So this is the doctrine of election, that it's the love of God that makes the difference. And by the way, if you want to go back to where that's from, 
It's taken from Malachi chapter 1. In Malachi chapter 1, the context of this statement is the children of Israel asking, Wherein have you loved us, Lord? Isn't that amazing? People want to talk about the love of God and leave election out. When they ask God about his love, he put it right in there. <laughs> Wherein is thy love, this Lord? He told them, I've loved you. I've loved you with this, in one place, an everlasting love. Wherein is thy love? He said, was not Jacob Esau's brother? And yet I loved Jacob and hated Esau. You know what he's saying there? He's saying, you didn't deserve it any more than Esau did. You're just like him. You were a twin. I want to tell you, beloved, you who are a child of God could pass for the twin of any reprobate out there in the world. All you got to do is let your guard down spiritually. You wonder about that? You, you question, is that so? Go with me to Atlanta traffic sometime and see if you don't look just like every other reprobate on the road. <laughs> They all must be reprobates the way they're driving, Brother Mackey, because, you know, anyway, that's, at least that's the way it feels when I'm out there. But, uh, you see, we're, we are the twin of every reprobate out there. We could be just like them, but yet God loved us. So then the question is here, though, in the context of the doctrine of election taught by Paul, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? That's the first objection we get, you know, is it just wouldn't be fair. It wouldn't be right. God wouldn't be right if he chose some and didn't choose all. If he didn't give everybody a chance. And Paul's answer is God forbid. God forbid. And the first thing that we need to take from that is what we're talking about tonight. God is just righteous. He just is righteous. He is always just. His judgment is always right. His righteousness is always just. He just is righteous. So any allegation that he's not should be banished from our lips. Now, I don't want to go too deep into this, but you know he goes on to explain why their conception or their concept of the doctrine of election was wrong if they think God is unjust. He says... What should we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. You understand that most of the time when people object to the doctrine of election, it's because the Esau have a hated part. It's always that part. Well, what about them? What about that? He said, it's not about that. It's not about wrath. The wrath of God is real. The wrath of God is going to be poured out upon the reprobate one day. If those that, and, and by the way, the reprobate aren't innocent. <laughs> They're not out there neutral. They're actively opposing God and everything that God stands for. But you see, the doctrine of election is about the mercy and compassion of God. I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. That changes the whole perspective of God, does it not? And of his doctrine of election. If you understand it as mercy and compassion, you don't have that same objection anymore. But you see, it's important that we understand that it's all based upon the righteousness and justice of God. And that's something Elihu gets right. God is a just God. God is, he wouldn't be God if he weren't just. Look as we go back to Job chapter 34 again and verse 13. 
Who hath given him a charge over the earth? Or who hath disposed the whole world? If he set his heart upon man, if he gather unto himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh shall perish together and man shall turn again unto dust. He's saying here, this God that you're accusing of being unjust, if he really were, he could just destroy us all. And by the way, he has that right. <laughs> he has that right. God, remember verse 12, surely God will not do wickedly. Neither will the Almighty pervert judgment. You see, nobody gave him a charge over there. That's the question. Who gave him charge over there? Nobody. He just had to try. He created the world. Who had disposed or given to him, given him the ability to, to dispose of the whole world? And if he, he says he's so almighty, he could destroy us, but he's a just God, you see. And if he weren't just, he wouldn't be God. By the way, before we move off of that, I read a quote in my studies that I like. I just want to share it with you before we move off of that one particular point. I was reading Warren Wiersbe, and uh, he said, An unjust God is, uh, is as unthinkable as a square circle or a round rectangle. Think about it. There's no such thing as a square circle or a round rectangle. <laughs> they just don't work. God, an unjust God, is just that fanciful and unthinkable. Now look, as we continue here, he goes on to say, down in verse 16, he, he begins to make another little argument. He, and this basically this, you know, he said, if God is unjust, he is not God. But here in verse 16 down through 20, he's saying, if God is unjust, there can be no justice. Notice what he says. If now thou hast understanding, hear this, hearken to the voice of my words. Shall even he that hateth right govern? And wilt thou condemn him that is most just? Is it fit to say to a king, thou art wicked, and to princes, ye are ungodly? How much less to him that accepteth not the persons of princes, nor regardeth the rich more than the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. In a moment they shall die, and the people shall be troubled at midnight and pass away, and the mighty shall be taken away without hand. Notice what he's saying here. Is it right? First of all, verse 17, he said, Shall he that hateth right govern, and wilt thou condemn him that is most just? He's saying here that there are kings, or verse 18 is one I was trying to get to. Look at verse 18. Is it fit to say to a king, thou art wicked, and to princes ye are ungodly? Okay? What he's saying here is, you're really not supposed to question the king. And especially if the king is really a just king, really a, a godly king. Is it right to question kings on earth? Clearly there are some just kings. How could the great king be unjust? God himself, how could he be unjust? And he says in verse 19, how much less appropriate is it to question God? Who is the great king, he doesn't even accept the persons of these princes. He doesn't regard the rich. You know, we're told over in the 13th chapter of Romans that the powers that be are ordained of God. Now, I don't understand that to mean that each and every ruler themselves that God places on the throne. Sometimes we get the wrong ruler. We elect the wrong person. <laughs> Some of you may feel that, you know, one election or the other went the wrong way. God expects us to do some things um, ourselves and to work some things out. But I do believe what that's talking about is that government itself is established by God. It's established by God, okay? 
And that means if it's established by God, God is over it. Now, don't let me clarify what I just said, by the way. I'm not saying God's not providentially involved in our elections or in who ascends the thrones. He is very much. But, uh, but to say that God, for example, put Hitler on the throne of Germany, that would be wrong to say that uh, because Hitler was a wicked man. Did God suffer it to happen? Absolutely. But you can blame the people of Germany for that, not, uh, not God. But the powers that be are ordained of God, and that means that God who ordained them is above them. And he's also, we're told in Acts chapter 10 and verse 34, Peter said he's no respecter of persons. No respecter of persons. You remember what Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 15? He calls Christ the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Now here's, here's the point I believe Elihu's trying to make. He's saying in our experience here in this world, apparently in that day, there were kings that were just and did, good, did right things. If there are just kings on this earth, don't you think the king of kings would be just? And if the king of kings is not just, God himself, if he's not just, then there can be no justice. All right? Verse 21. He starts with another little point here. And he's saying if God is unjust, then he must just be oblivious to what's going on in the world. He said, for his eyes are upon the ways of men... Or man, and he seeth all his goings. There is no darkness nor shadow of death where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. For he will not lay upon a man more than right that he should enter into judgment with God. He shall break in pieces mighty men without number and set others in their stead. Therefore he knoweth their works and he overturneth them in the night so that they are destroyed. He striketh them as wicked men in the open sight of others because they turned back from him and would not consider any of his ways so that they caused the cry of the poor to come unto him. And he heareth the cry of the afflicted. When he giveth quietness, who then can make trouble? When he hideth his face, who then can behold him? Whether it be done against a nation or against a man only, that the hypocrite reign not, lest the people be ensnared. Basically, he's saying that God sees, I stated it in a negative way, but what he's saying is, is that God sees everything that happens on earth. He is omniscient and omnipresent, and God sees the justice that's done, and he sees the injustice that's done, and he himself renders judgment. You know, Job had said that God had hidden his face from his troubles and wouldn't answer Job's complaints. That's, that's what Job had alleged. But notice in verse 23, Elihu says, He will not lay upon man more than right, that he, that is, that man should enter into judgment with God. Let me just stop there and say this. This is about the only place in the scripture you can possibly come up with a statement that we often hear made and that I made myself that, well, hey, God won't put on us more than we can bear. Now, that's not a correct statement of Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. You know, over there he talks about... Um, uh, there is no temptation taken us, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer us to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation make a way of escape. That's a little different than saying God won't put on you more than you can bear. <laughs> but that's what Elihu is saying here. And there is a sense in which God won't suffer things to come upon you more than you can handle. He won't suffer things to come to you that, that he won't be with you through those trials. Okay.
It's not a complete statement. <laughs> Again, I don't, wanna, I, don't, I don't think Elihu gets it all right because according to Paul, when those trials come upon us, what we need to be looking for is the way of escape. We don't need to be the Stoic, like the Greek Stoics were in that day that just shouldered the burden and bowed up their backs and said, let's plod on through and we'll, we'll just have to endure all that God... The Stoics were basically absoluters. They believed everything that happened was predetermined and they just had to endure it. Paul says that we don't need to be absoluters. We need to be looking for a way of escape. And that way of escape is to turn to God. You see, not necessarily an escape out of troubles. The troubles may never leave. You know, when Christ walked on the water to the disciples, he didn't calm the storm first. He was walking to them in the storm. The storm was still raging. The winds were still blowing. The lightning was still flashing. The thunder was still rolling. The seas were tempestuous. Even when Peter stepped out onto the water, the storm, he didn't step onto a calm sea. He stepped out on the water in the midst of the storm and walked on that stormy water as long as he had his eyes on Christ. You know what the way of escape is in every situation, no matter what? It's to put your eyes on Jesus. Now, you can be obstinate and continue down that path. Sometimes you, you need to not only put your eyes on Jesus, but to get yourself up and turn around and go back to Jesus. <laughs> the prodigal son could have looked way up there on the hill and see, well, there's daddy's house. I'm in the hog pen. Sure would be nice to be in daddy's house. <laughs> but he came to himself and got up and went back. You know, the good news, by the way, there, he didn't have to go all the way back. The father ran to him. <laughs> I love that. It's the only place where I see anybody who is symbolic of God running. Somebody wrote a song one time, When God Ran. I'll tell you when he runs. When your heart is broken, when your life is burdened down, under your own sin, maybe, under your own foolish decisions and you find yourself in the pig pen of life and you're headed back to the father he'll meet you before you get there you don't have to claw and climb your way all the way back he ran to that son and he helped him come back threw his arms around and clothed him with his cloak killed the fatted calf so look at this as we try to bring this to a close he said job thinks that God doesn't see his troubles, that he's hidden his face from him. But God knows everything, and he sees everything. David's going to talk about that over in the 139th Psalm. It's one of my favorite psalms, I can tell you that. In chapter 139 of the Psalms, verse 1, he said, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. You ever get to the point where you say, nobody knows me. I'm all alone in this world. Let me tell you something. God has searched you and known you, and he knows you better than you know yourself. Thou knowest my down-sitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compasseth my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Now, there's a sense in which that's scary for the things that we've done and continue to do that are not in accord with the Word of God. 
But there's a sense in which that's sweet and comforting. There's times in my life, and I've been through some of them lately, where I needed, where, where in the night watches, when I couldn't sleep, when I was troubled in soul, and nobody knew how troubled I was, that God come past my path and my lying down. He knew my down sitting. He knew my uprising. Every time I woke in the night and got up, he knew all about it. And he understood my thought from afar off when I didn't even understand my thoughts. Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. You, know, ever, you ever get there where you say, Lord, I just can't hardly believe this. It's... it's it's amazing and it, it, just, it just blows my mind that you are so great. Whither shall I go from thy spirit or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. Well, we know, we know God's there. But notice, if I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. This idea that you can be a child of God one day and be a child of the devil the next is foreign to the scripture. Because you see, even when... Here in this life, you're living in the hell pits of the world. God's there. If I ascend up to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. I love that. And he goes on to talk about even knowing me in the womb. What a God we serve. Job said, God doesn't know me. Elihu says, God knows you. He knows everything about you. And I like verse 29. He says, when he gives quietness, who then can make trouble? <laughs> when God quiets the waters of your soul, nobody can upset that. When he hideth his face, who then can behold him? When God feels, you know, there have been times in my life I've, under the chastening hand of God, I felt he was clean gone forever. I couldn't find him in the places I was looking. But when I turned back to the Lord's way, I found him. And then he goes on to emphasize, beginning in verse 31 and down through the end of the chapter, this concept that suffering can be for our good. Notice he says, Surely it is meet, verse 31, to be said unto God, I have borne chastisement, I will not offend any more. That which I see not, teach thou me. If I have done iniquity, I will do no more. In other words, he said, it's good to say, I'm going to stop. I'm going to do, do things different. And, and let me just say to you, child of God, sometimes that's what we need to do. The, the, the prodigal son didn't need to stay in the pig pen. He needed to change. If I have done iniquity, I will do it no more. Should it be according to thy mind, he will recompense it, whether thou refuse or whether thou choose and not I, therefore speak what thou knowest. Let men of understanding tell me, let a wise man hearken unto me. Job has spoken without knowledge, and his words were without wisdom. My desire is that Job may be tried unto the end because of his answers for wicked men. For he addeth rebellion unto his sin, and clappeth his hands among us, and multiplieth his words against God. Now, notice what's happened here as we kind of bring this chapter to a close. Elihu gets some things right. Sometimes suffering is good for us in the sense that it keeps us from evil or brings us back from the brink of destruction. It's kind of like, kind of like spanking your children, disciplining your children. It brings them back. I don't discipline them because I didn't discipline them because I liked it. I did it to, for their good. 
okay? Sometimes God suffers things to come upon his children, and it's ultimately is for their good, for them to learn, to be tried as gold is tried. I believe that's one reason that Job suffered as he did. The Lord allowed that. He suffered that to come upon him because Job had some pride that needed to be kind of burned away like that wood, hay, and stubble, the chaff. Elihu's doing pretty good till he gets down here in verse 35. He said, he turns to Job. Now, this is, this is where we can learn a lesson. When someone's suffering, even if it's suffering because of things they've done, and in Job's case, we know it wasn't, but if, even if it were, it is not appropriate for us to ever deal harshly with them. It's not appropriate to ever deal harshly. Is there a time to snatch them out of the fire and to be firm and adamant? Yes, but is it ever appropriate to get spiteful and angry? Absolutely not. Job has spoken without knowledge. His words without wisdom. My desire is that Job may be tried unto the end because of his answers for wicked men. For he addeth rebellion to his sin and multiplieth his words against God. Notice that anger and that, that misplaced zeal, if, if you will. The passion there. He was doing pretty good and then he gets harsh and legalistic with it. Child of God, even when we get it right, we can get it wrong. Even when we get it right, we can get it wrong. In the context of church discipline, which, praise the Lord, we haven't had to do in a long time. We can get it right. We can come down exactly with the scriptures. But we can also get it wrong. Why are we doing it? What's the spirit we do it in? Is the purpose for restoration or is the purpose for punishment? The Lord knows our hearts. And when we're dealing with those that are struggling, we need to have love and compassion. I don't see that with Elihu. That's his primary problem, I believe. And we're going to see that as we continue looking. Chapter 35, we're going to see that he answers the other charge of Job, that God is not good. And he's going to show us, and correctly so, that God is a good God. I appreciate your kind attention tonight. Thank you for joining us today on the Zion Primitive Baptist Church podcast. I hope the message has been uplifting and beneficial to you and that the Lord will continue to bless you to grow in grace and knowledge of the truth. Join us again tomorrow for another message of God's sovereign grace. If you would like to subscribe to our website, please go to www.zionpbc.com and sign up for email updates. If you have any questions, please feel free to contact the church at zionpbc1847 at gmail.com. That's zionpbc1847 at gmail.com. Or you can email me directly at jchrismacool at gmail.com. That's the letter J-C-H-R-I-S-M-C-C-O-O-L at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening. May the Lord bless you is my prayer. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.